idea of that people are being cancelled or no platformed, I think is kind of interesting, partly because in order for those things to happen, you have to have a platform to begin with. You have to have access to um, an audience. So in order, in order for someone to say, you don't get that audience anymore, you have to already have had access to an audience. So... Salams, peace and blessings. You're listening to Breaking Binaries Season 2 with me, your host, Sahayna Manzal Khan, known online as the Brown Hijabi. As a society, we're obsessed with explaining our world through the use of straightforward opposing categories. So, good or bad, moderate or radical, pretty or ugly, victim or villain, the list goes on. All these sets of binaries, though, tend to be quite superficial, and they hide the real complexities, the politics and the nuances of how we've been encouraged to think. Following from the conversations of season one, every episode this series, I'll be sitting down with a different friend to break down, break apart, and interrogate a different binary and see how doing so helps us think more critically about ourselves and our world, and therefore, how we transform it. This week, I sat down with Dr. Sita Balani. She's a lecturer in contemporary literature and culture at King's College London. In her research and teaching, she explores the relationship between histories of imperialism and contemporary culture in Britain. Her work has appeared in Feminist Review, Identity Theory, Open Democracy, PhotoWorks and the Verso blog. We had a really interesting discussion where I actually learned so many new ways to think about free speech and censorship. And I feel like the lens that Sita provided and the questions that she offered for us to ask have actually given me a whole new way to think about the blurred space in between and the questions that we don't actually need to answer when we're proposed with this binary. So I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and that you can take away from it as much as I did. So hi and welcome back to season two. Today I'm sitting with Sita Balani. How are you Sita? I'm good thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm all right. I just always do this thing where I'm speaking like a newscaster and I can hear it in my own voice and I can't stand it. But that is good. I'm glad to have you. So basically, thank you so much for being here. Um, I have wanted to do an episode with you for a while and then I just feel like so much has been happening this year that that obviously just, you know, wasn't an option. And now you're here. So today we're going to be talking about breaking down the binary of free speech and censorship. The context in which like I'm coming to this from, I mean, these are two words I think have been thrown about since, you know, high school. Like free speech was like this really important thing. Censorship is a really bad thing. Um, and then I guess the themes and, and the way that I see those two things has changed as I've, you know, when I was in university, there was, I remember, you know, there was like demos about certain people, you know, Nigel Farage is going to speak at the Cambridge Union and we were saying, don't let him speak. And people were saying, so you hate free speech. And I was thinking, well, do we? I, I don't know if that's what I'm saying here. And, you know, and now I now do kind of a lot of the work around Islamophobia really involves like a real, a real confusion, I feel, around these two concepts and, and how sometimes it feels like one is being used to hide the other. So say all of that, but um, before we jump into it, um, I guess, can I begin by asking you um, to introduce free speech and censorship as in the way they're presented to us um, as opposing forces? So what are they on their own terms, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. So I think we're often presented with the idea of freedom of speech or freedom of expression as a fundamental human right. Yeah. So you'd hear about that as a human right that's encapsulated in the UNHCR Declaration of Human Rights, in international law, in European law, and so on. Um, and that 
you'd hear about the opposite of that as things that as censorship. Um, so things done by authoritarian regimes, usually that's how we understand uh, opposition to free speech. So the persecution of artists such as Ai Weiwei in China, that was a kind of flashpoint for people thinking about censorship. Obviously, journalists and writers all over the world are subjected to censorship for the things that they publish. Uh, there's like an organisation like Penn International that's been around for decades that really focuses on campaigning for journalists who are subject to um, censorship or persecution for their freedom of expression. But I think I was also, I also understood in those kind of liberal terms, free speech historically through the banning of particular books. So the obscenity trial of uh, D.H. Lawrence, Lady Chatterley's Lover or The Well of Loneliness. These were kind of like meant to be sort of watershed moments in the development of the idea of freedom of expression in a Western context, right? So we understand these two things as freedom of speech is this like liberal, democratic, supposedly universal right. Uh, and and curtailing free speech as a form of censorship enacted by authoritarian states. But even within a kind of so-called liberal democracy, even within this binary of free speech and censorship, there are already built into laws, built into the legal system of a liberal democratic society. Um, Even in their own terms, there are limitations built in. So you can't say whatever you want about someone if it's not true. And that not have any consequences, right? So we have slander laws, we have libel laws that stop that. We have obscenity laws, we have laws about intellectual property. So you can't you can't print off uh, an article and say you wrote it when you didn't. Like there's an intellectual property law that stops that happening. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say that's such a good point. And and I don't know if you know, but like with those particularly like libel slander, like is there um I don't know, is there any kind of caveat within that law that kind of talks about this ever being possibly infringing on free speech? So in order, according to this kind of liberal framework, and as we know, like liberal frameworks are a set of like uh, prescriptive statements. So they say this is how the world should be. They don't actually reflect the world as it is. So we should always remember that when we're talking about like liberal ideas, that these are a set of principles, basically. How they're actually enacted in reality, I think, is uh, often, as I'm sure we'll get to, like a slightly different thing. But in that principle, the idea is that if you're going to curtail free speech, there should be a good reason for it. So a, a state can say, this is a threat to national security. As such, we can curtail your speech. So you have to be able to give a reason. In theory, that the state or the government should be accountable for that decision. So it should also be possible to challenge any kind of attempt to limit freedom of expression. That's the idea. So those are the kind of background ideas of it, I think. Yeah, that's really helpful because I think already (laughs) it's clear that there are these fractures and it's also clear that, you know, it it kind of depends, right, on how you're going to define which speech is, is... you know tolerable and intolerable under that banner so clearly already there's things that are hidden and I guess just to help us begin to unpick it um and kind of find a way through this mess would you say there's like a central issue or a central assumption um that makes or that helps us begin to unpick these, these two things as opposites yeah, so I suppose the kind of fundamental assumption uh, that underpins the idea that free speech should be universal um, is that 
is this kind of idea from liberal philosophy. Uh, so like John Stuart Mill's On Liberty is this kind of like classic text of sort of enlightenment philosophy that says truth drives out falsity. So like good ideas drive out bad ideas. Like the truth, the truth wins the day. That's basically the idea. And so that you shouldn't be scared to have completely free debate. There should be no risk inherent to that because the truth will out, essentially, is the idea. Because humans are supposed to be rational, thinking, reasonable creatures who, through rational debate, will come to the best ideas, will find the truth. This is, this is something that I just remember very clearly um, when I was at Cambridge. The Cambridge Union is sort of like this bastion of debate in exactly these terms. And there was kind of this encouragement that, you know, you should never be afraid to debate a topic because, you know, if you win, it will be, that will prove that you kind of had the truer, more, you know, uh, more substantial argument. And I think that was exactly on these terms. And it was, and I always kind of couldn't weigh up why I felt so uncomfortable about that necessarily, which I think is what you're going to get to. Yeah. And I do think it's a really compelling idea. Like we shouldn't pretend there's not something interesting, compelling about that idea. Like I want to believe it. I would think the world would be better if that were true. I just don't think it is true. And I think we can see some evidence like of how, this kind of perfect, pure, rational public sphere doesn't isn't really the thing that we have, right? So this idea in John Stuart Mill's that good good drives out bad, that the truth drives out false information, like we've seen the exact opposite happen in digital media. So false information circulates much more widely than things that are verifiably true. So we actually see that like the literal opposite is happening in front of us. So I think it'd be a mistake to like still hold fast to the idea that the truth will always out when we can see if we look empirically at what's happening. That uh, doesn't need to be the case. Yeah, that's that's such a good point because I think even just coming to my head is like there's this strange um, kind of it's almost like we've conceded to this circumstances where particularly I think the way that in the UK we talk about Donald Trump, it's like, Oh, you know, there he is lying again, but <laughs> such is the case. And and that is really interesting because it, that kind of goes, as you say, completely against this idea that we will always, the truth will always prevail because, you know, here he is potentially winning another term. And, you know, how, how does that, that fit in there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of the thing that's interesting about, uh, the way that this functions with someone like Trump is that his big platform is Twitter and he's worth $2 billion a year to Twitter. Like just, just his Twitter account is worth that much to them. So they make revenue through advertising and his tweets, right. Okay. Wow. So his tweets produce more engagement than basically anything else on there. Wow. That's, I never thought of it like that. So there's not really any incentive to, censor him on the part of, of Twitter because he is worth a huge amount to their business model. And so like his lies are incredibly lucrative lies. Like a lot of people eat off the back of his lies. A lot of people make their lives off the back of his lies. Wow. That's a really powerful way of putting it. Could, could it be argued that well, Twitter's a corporation, so of course they're going to be profit-driven, but that doesn't mean the fundamental, you know, the the, the truth, of, you know, if, the, if Twitter was a, you know, like the BBC, for example, being a, a much more neutral, <laughs> a so-called neutral space, like they surely um, can't be accused of trying to make money off presenting things like this, and, and they still will talk about Trump's um, opinions and stuff. Does that mean they're, like, trying to platform, should they be censored, you know, should they censor Trump? 
Yeah, so I think we should we should make some distinctions for sure between the state and corporations. We should think about them not as identical to each other. They're obviously like massively embroiled in each other. And certainly I think it would be ridiculous to say that the BBC shouldn't report on Donald Trump, but I do think that they should do so in a way that actually does in some way embody some of that kind of like robust debate that we get told is such a great idea so we get sold the idea of robust debate of like rigorous challenge but actually that's not really what you see when you watch the BBC and the BBC is not also not not like these state institutions are still like massively run by a group of quite a narrow group of very elite people so like Laura Kunzberg who's the chief political correspondent is the her great uncle was the last British governor general of Nigeria like these are colonial families who remain in power basically yeah and I think also there's that idea isn't there that like um because the BBC is like inherently a neutral space they will because I think they would they there's always this argument you know I have a couple of friends who are journalists who sort of talk about because you always have to have you know two sides of the debate but what that actually does is work in a really counterintuitive way where you kind of have you then are kind of taking lies on on a basis of being as true as truth if that makes sense it's a very like confusing thing but i guess you know oh when you have uh, an anti-racist speaking you have to also have a racist in, in like just in terms of like fairness and and that free speech principle i guess and i think that is really important for the way that it produces everything as an argument with two sides so that everything is assumed to be like a kind everything's assumed to be basically a debate at the Oxford Union. And like that's actually not really how ideas work. Like that's a very particular model of thinking. There's a million other ways to think. We don't have to think in a set of like adversarial uh news debates. That's not most of us are capable of something more complex than that. But I think if you're constantly fed that as the only model for political disagreement then that starts to seem inevitable. But in fact, you don't necessarily have to have like someone who thinks that we sh- there should be open borders versus Nigel Farage. You don't have to have that debate. Right, right. And I guess, I guess a response to that would be, though, by not having that debate, you're then censoring somebody, right? You're falling into that other side of the binary now where you're censoring. And so... Can you help us to kind of unpack why that's not exactly, despite not having Nigel Farage on a debate on TV, that doesn't feel like that's really censoring? So I think we, I think there's a kind of weird way in which what censorship actually, a, a, a more useful definition of censorship, I think might be one that begins from whether or not you can safely express your opinion or uh, express an idea without fear of state the state persecuting you. So if we begin with the idea, I don't think that's the only thing that censorship is, but I think it would be good, useful to begin from the idea that censorship might be that you could be imprisoned, harassed, or otherwise persecuted for expressing a particular opinion or idea. So that actually is very much a thing that happens. That's an alive and well phenomenon in the world, in Britain, that you can be criminalised for expressing certain things. So we might think about um, drill music. Drill music has been subject to a kind of moral panic uh, and particular MCs are not allowed to perform particular songs in public. They have their videos taken off of YouTube. They 
are uh, given suspended sentences on the basis of not then performing a song or not then saying particular words in a song. I mean, this is extraordinary, right? The idea that you might go to prison because you said a word in a song and put it on YouTube, like that's, to me, is a much more kind of um, acute example of censorship than who gets to go on the BBC on some level, because not being invited to speak to millions of people is not actually being censored. It's just not being given a particular platform. Right, right. And that's interesting because the way you describe that, I think, is a description that we would attribute to, like, you know, some quote unquote foreign dictatorship somewhere where, you know, you can't say certain things in your songs. And if you do, you go to prison. Um, and I think people would be quite surprised to to kind of know that about the UK. And I guess there's also a way in which, like, I guess the way that we even know, like, what is and isn't um, allowed to be spoken freely about is is kind of presented to us in ways that are very obscured and hidden so those examples that you're talking about i think we would they would never be presented to us in a way that makes us question the state's motives right it's like the state is always justified um and then that's like a really good thing that they've done in order to protect people right because these words have the power to promote violence or promote um you know all sorts of kind of crime quote unquote so in that sense we only ever see it as like something really justified yeah, and I think that justification, it's kind of amazing how easily that justification for doing something like banning musicians from making music has been taken up in, for example, those forums like the BBC. So um, my friend Adam Elliott Cooper, who I'm sure some listeners will be familiar with his work, um, he talked about going on to the BBC, I think it was, or another news show, and someone saying, but why? what are the benefits of drill music? As though... People have to justify the art they make to you and show it has a social benefit. Otherwise, they should be criminalised for making it. Like, you would never ask that of any kind of an artist who had more social capital. You would never ask that. No one, if you if you make, like, kind of mediocre painting, but you happen to be quite successful, no one's like, what benefit does this bring to society? But if you're... Um, MC from South London and the police deem you to be in a gang, then the question is not, the question becomes, what is the benefit to me of the art you make? Which is an extraordinary question. That's, yeah, it's actually kind of incomprehensible because I guess there's like, and that kind of works as well against this, like, I think a liberal assumption that like, you know, art is like a really important, inherently good way that people express themselves. But now suddenly you need to justify the production of your art. And, you know, that, that suddenly makes it, I don't know, this very utilitarian thing that previously we're told it shouldn't be. So that's, yeah, that's very confusing. That's like who should get to make art, right? Who For whom is art a form of self-expression and for whom is art a kind of threat to the majority? And I think, so even in that, you can see that it's not an even playing field. It's not that everyone has the equal access to the tools to express themselves freely. Yeah, and I think there's even parallels there with like, I know that under um, under terrorism legislation, most of the people who have been convicted in the UK have been people who have written things. It's to do with literature. It's to do with either possessing a book or a you know PDF or writing you know an article or even a poem. Um, and I think there's something really interesting in both those examples about a link being made between the power of of speech and words um, and a potential future violence that they could contribute to that makes it therefore justified to stop the people speaking in the first place. And these aren't people, as you say, that are being invited onto the BBC. 
Yeah, and I think that's an interesting, there's an interesting kind of um, contradiction going on in the way that the British state deals with speech and what it thinks speech is capable of. So it believes that drill, drill MCs, their speech can cause violence, right? So the, an MC talking about stabbing another person could mean it's the same as doing it it's all there's almost totally collapsed those distinctions i'm also not suggesting that there's never any relationship between what happens like in that kind of artistic production and what might happen like in reality like i don't mean there's no connection but i do think it makes more sense to think of that as a kind of documenting of the violence that people live in rather than like being a direct causation of it and the same kind of is true of how the British state thinks about like, radicalization or the the idea that someone might be exposed to extremist ideology. And then from there, there's almost no difference between that and committing a violent act. So it, it produces forms of criminalization on the basis that there is almost no difference between word and deed. But when you suggest that actually that you say, okay, I take that to be true. So Boris Johnson says women, uh, Muslim women who wear the burqa look like letterboxes. And then someone in the street shouts that uh, Muslim woman, apparently there's no connection. Apparently that thing, that singular man is responsible for his actions and has nothing to do with what the prime minister says. So that already, there's a kind of double standard at the very least that people are being held to here about terms of, Whose speech is dangerous? Definitely. I, th- I think there was a story the other day about um, the after um, a white supremacist had basically gone to a legal firm of solicitors who were defending um, immigrants. And, and I think it then came out that, you know, Met Police or Counter-Terror Police had been warning the Home Office and Priti Patel to kind of ease up on the anti-refugee and anti, anti-lawyers, uh, what was she calling them, like activist lawyers, um, because it could lead to violence. And I thought that was really interesting because that wasn't really picked up on, but I, I don't know, I kind of also felt there was something in there about like this connection between her speech as somebody who's actually literally the home secretary of the UK, like state sanctioned, right? As compared to the speech of somebody else. And I think, yeah, I just found that really hard to kind of weigh up and see how they can deploy those discourses, but then not really apply them anywhere else. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a great example of how direct that line was, right? So how quickly that could be taken up within a kind of context that's already sort of like this kind of like febrile, volatile public sphere at the moment. So I think Britain has a kind of edge on it at the moment. I think if you walk around, you can feel the tension is really high. Like I feel like very ordinary interactions seem like they could pop off. And part of that is because there's a real incendiary use of language in the political sphere that I think does actually have an effect and I don't think that means that everyone should be more polite but I do think it should be that we should acknowledge that the direction of travel is that some of the things that are said in public by political elites set a standard for what is acceptable and that they justify and also deputize people in the public to behave in particular ways yeah, and I think that point you're making now is is one of maybe the key things, right? That like power is an important part of this conversation. That you know, it's not 
to, to kind of just apply the, these kind of categories as arbitrary and always true, you know, no matter where you stand in society. Um, I suppose, like, how can we think about power in the sense of, because one of the other kind of parallel conversations to this free speech and censorship or linked to this is around, I suppose, no platforming. Um, and then that's kind of, I guess, mutated into like cancel culture as well. And these two things being linked, like you're kind of preventing people from speaking or you're not allowing them to speak anymore. Um, is, how and is that linked to power in, in a way as well? Yeah, so we've got this kind of massive public conversation about what's called cancel culture and about what's called like the what seems to be being described as a kind of tyranny of wokeness, right? And this it's really just a reheating of the same conversation that was happening 10 years ago about political correctness and no platforming. So we're just in a horrible loop. And in 10 years, they'll have come up with two new words and we'll have to kind of have the conversation again with whatever words have replaced wokeness and cancelling. So I look forward to that. But it's worth saying that only because I think sometimes these things get presented as though they're brand new. And actually, we've been here before. Um, And so the idea of that people are being cancelled or no platformed, I think is kind of interesting, partly because in order for those things to happen, you have to have a platform to begin with. You have to have access to um, an audience. So in order in order for someone to say you don't get that audience anymore, you have to already have had access to an audience. So yeah. a random guy at the bus stop can't be cancelled. Whatever it is that's going on in his head, you know, if you don't have a kind of platform, you can't have it taken away from you. So when a far-right speaker is invited to speak on a university in a university context and students protest about that and say that they don't think this speaker should be given a platform that is because that person already has an audience that person has an audience they're not being deprived of their right to freedom of expression what they're being deprived of is um the particular audience they were expecting that day so I think it's important to make a distinction there between whether or not someone is going to be persecuted for the things that they say or whether or not someone is being held to account for the things that they've said in the past. That's a really interesting point because I think, you know, that example you've given as well about university campuses, I think often what happens and if you kind of oppose a speaker coming is this idea that but wouldn't it be better if you just let them come and you debate and you showed, you know, you showed Nigel Farage how wrong he was by just, you know, displaying your side of the, you know, the, the pros and cons, basically, right? So you display the other side of the debate. Um, and I guess that links back to what you were saying right at the beginning, that, you know, this this kind of suggests that all opinions are on an equal footing. And uh, I think what you just said then about, like, there are, there are some, I guess, opinions doesn't really like whether there are some narratives that, will literally result in persecution and death and people's lives being less livable. And there are some narratives that are counter to that and not, and they don't carry the same weight at all, or they kind of try, try to counter that. And so I think there's always, there's also something there about just this, this kind of object objectivity, I guess, like this neutral space of ideas that, that, you know, John Stuart Mills uh, was speaking about comes back to play. And I think also the kind of arguments around universities assume that there are only two players involved. So there's like the rowdy, rabble-rousing students trying to shut things down because they're snowflakes and can't handle being challenged. And there's the kind of like honourable, conservative thinker who's being silenced. 
in fact, I think these characterizations are ridiculous, but there's also a set of other actors. So universities, management has a set of kind of roles to play there. The university's investments are often kind of a relevant um, factor. So when a speaker from the IDF is coming the Israeli Defence Forces coming to speak at a university, do a bit of digging and you'll probably find out that there are some investments that the university has in the Israeli military or that there's some shared intelligence going on there or there's a recruitment sort of relationship there. So it's not, there's never a pure debate. I think that's really important. So there's never this kind of pure, as you say, neutral sphere in which debate can happen. There's always a set of material and political interests. So before kind of accepting the liberal premise of a kind of neutral public sphere, we'd be better off saying, let's not think about what the ideas are yet. Let's think about who is a player, who's an actor in this situation, what do they have at stake, who's making money from this, who's gaining something from this, like who's involved and what do they get from the situation? Yeah, and, and that I think that's, that, that question leads perfectly into kind of the, the question that I guess I want to open up now, which usually comes at this point in the podcast, which is, you know, it's very clear at this stage that um, free speech and censorship are, are very much constructed and they obscure kind of important power dynamics in, in our lives. Um, and so the question that you've touched on, I guess I'll kind of throw it back to you, but in the sense of well, why does this binary exist then? Like clearly it's hiding something, but who does it benefit Um and what does it justify and why, and why is it important for those things to be justified? I, I don't know. You can approach that, I guess, however you want or, or whatever example you, you might want to bring in. I guess it's the way that the state uses limitations on freedom of speech is to maintain and shore up its own power. Right. So we see that an authoritarian regime will silence voices and narratives and ideas that challenge its legitimacy. But more less obviously authoritarian regimes will do this too right so we can see that from this from the kind of view of the state which is trying to always maintain its power silencing dissent is an important part of managing that power it's also an important part of maintaining a kind of ideological dominance so determining what ideas are acceptable ideas and what ideas fall outside of the realms of reasonable debates so what you can and can't expect to hear without consequence but i think this current idea that there's a kind of rash of censorship in society and that what's been referred to as cancel culture right so the idea that you can't say if you have a column in which you write a set of transphobic ideas every two weeks of the guardian and that people object to that and respond publicly to you doing that and that the, the, you know there's this idea that this person has been cancelled like this is a kind of what what's being what's being advocated for there is not freedom of speech but freedom from consequence so people want absolute speech with no consequences and so this I think that the free speech censorship kind of binary is hiding uh, the disintegration of a sort of liberal elite who have become, who find themselves kind of irrelevant um, and challenged more and more. And so rather than being like, oh, people don't like my ideas, what does that mean? 
they're like, I'm being cancelled, this is censorship. Whereas actually having your Guardian column taken away is not censorship. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And it, it reminds me of actually, um, you remember, uh, I think it was maybe 2016, 2017, when um, Sarah Champion, it was Sarah Champion, she wrote that article in The Sun that was like, um, you know, Pakistani men are raping white girls. And it was like this expose on grooming gangs. And one of the big discourses around at that time was that because of fear of being called racist, aka being cancelled for being a racist, um, no one wanted to, you know, talk about the fact that like there are South Asian men who are abusing these children. And I think what that kind of, I guess, blaming by blaming this idea of like we would have been cancelled if we said that it was so counterintuitive because it was like, well, hang on, you're still saying it, so you haven't been cancelled clearly. Um, but secondly, I think what you, what you just raised about the question of accountability became so important then because it was like, actually, you're using this to justify a narrative that means that there is no accountability had around kind of sexual violence or child sexual abuse. And, you know, there is no notion that maybe state institutions or criminal justice system that doesn't believe survivors or, you know, austerity that's cut services for young people and women and children or any of those factors that make people vulnerable need to be held to account. And so I think that's a really, that's a really helpful way that you've kind of um, given to, to us there to think about this in terms of people just wanting to speak a, without consequences, but also perhaps like deflecting consequences in, in other places and like displacing them. Yeah, that's a really great example, I think, particularly because all anyone was talking about was race there. And so the idea that it couldn't be spoken about was obviously absurd. But also that you're right, that was used to deflect from the massive failure of state institutions to protect young women, precisely because they viewed these young women as beyond the state's interest. So actually they really made already made a decision dozens of different state authorities had said we don't really care we knew perfectly what was happening we don't really care and so then to have that deflected um and brought into this kind of awful culture wars type narrative um does such a disservice both to those survivors but also to the rest of us that have to exist in these conversations because we end up um, having to have this argument on their terms, right? So we end up having arguments about like, well, no one talks about race when they talk about Jimmy Savile. That's a perfectly good point, but I don't think it does justice to the to the survivors in either of those situations. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and I think that's such a, a good way of putting it about kind of having to have the debate on on other people's terms, or particularly the terms of the state, because just thinking about... Um, what's going on in France at the moment in terms of kind of the way that perpetrators of violence are seen to be kind of as a result of not like not really understanding free speech well enough and being, you know, it's like Muslims are hurt by free speech, but this is a fundamental uh, principle of France. And if they're going to be violent in reaction to that, then they, you know, are inherently others. And I think there's just a lot that's conflated within that. Um, and speaking to what you're saying, it, it feels like we never get to talk to talk about the actually kind of important things within that in terms of structural racism, in terms of kind of causes of violence, because instead we, we have to have it on terms that the state are kind of telling us to have it on, which is, you know, Muslims need to be able to deal with free speech. And then, then you get kind of bound up in this really long winded and kind of protracted, pointless conversation. I, I seem to feel. I think I've really felt that. And even when I was thinking about this podcast, I kept being found myself drawn back into that kind of uh, liberal debate as though, 
the the end game is always to say should you or should you not be able to publish the cartoon as though this is the fundamental question i think that the way it's constantly being pulled back to that should you be able to say offensive things and in fact this is a kind of invented problem right so we don't have to decide that i think we shouldn't feel that we have to have an answer to that question because there are a lot more pressing questions than answering in a way you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't when you answer that question it's bad for everyone when you answer the question in a way i think that refusing the terms of the argument might be a more important intervention to make that's really helpful because i think it it often is also presented as like we have to clear this up before we can we can't talk about structural racism we can't talk about you know colonialism islamophobia or any of that until we've cleared this up like is a cartoon an issue or not? And it's kind of like, yeah, that doesn't feel helpful. And I guess so, so like a question that I usually ask, and I feel like you've already sort of answered in, in what you're saying, but perhaps you can give us, I don't know, some, some further advice is just, you know, this isn't a helpful way to think about things, these terms. So, and you've, I guess you've already given us some other ways we can think about this, whether that's accountability, whether that's like thinking about the state trying to shore up on its power. But if I can ask you more directly, um, what for you is perhaps like a better framework that we can use to think about the things that are referred to when we're thinking about free speech and censorship? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, yeah, as I've said, I think we should begin with what's actually happening. So rather than start with the abstract and then try and apply it to the concrete, it might be sometimes I think it's more useful to start with the kind of concrete and ask the question of like, who profits from expression? So whether or not they profit monetarily or in some other way, what, who profits? So often, if we're talking about speech online, it's that these tech companies profit. So the first thing to remember, I think, is also is to ask that question. Because I think otherwise we assume that the things we're saying are, again, these kind of pure, pure forms of expression. But actually, if every time you tweet a, a message of solidarity, one of the things that you're also doing is making money for Silicon Valley. That seems worth thinking about. Well, that's really distressing. It's obviously a horrible idea, but it, it remains one that I think we have to kind of reckon with, right? So if you ask the question, how much money has the digital mediation of the BLM movement made for Twitter? That's a really awful question, but I think it's a relevant one. Yeah, I think that also speaks to something that's come up in a few episodes around like the co-option of, you know, anti-racist politics or other other politics. And I think that there's been this feeling that lots of people have expressed in different ways that, you know, capitalism manages to kind of regurgitate anti-racist politics in a way that really suits it. And I think this is one that I hadn't really thought about at all, actually. And it's it's really distressing, I guess, because the, the online platform seems to be the space where lots of us learn and, and share kind of thoughts but to know that at the same time, it's kind of, you know, turning into this algorithm of like profit making for somebody, as you say, you know, sitting miles away and, and definitely not invested in kind of who lives or dies as a basis of these politics. That's um, very, very distressing. It's a terrible idea, but I feel like it's one that we often, we, we, we think of whether or not social media is good or bad for us, like, but actually thinking about just like what, what, what it does, who does it make money for? And then also thinking about what forms of state censorship are actually happening. So what is the state currently doing? And I think thinking about that globally is also useful. So thinking about what the state in here is doing in relation to something like the Indian communication blockade of Kashmir, right? So cut off phone internet 
like all forms of contact is an extraordinary uh, an incredibly violent form of censorship that allowed for military occupation that allowed for the revocation of Kashmir's particular legal status that really like was a very visible to the rest of the world but also very hidden in terms of the everyday reality of it act of it's a massive land grab so that form of like settler colonial expansion of the Indian state relied on censorship it relied on a communications blockade so that seems important to me to say like if we're going to talk about censorship we should be talking about that too right no one talked about like the cancelling of an entire people and you know landmass totally so who profits what forms of state censorship are actually happening and then who has the power to spread their ideas without personal risk or consequence so I think those are the questions that i would always want to ask of a situation Mm, that's really really helpful i think that's kind of it's a whole and it helps because it's a different way of approaching these conversations as well and i think particularly i don't know that a lot of people listening are also you know university students and i think there's often like you're always already on the back foot if you're trying to kind of make the case that maybe these things that are presented as free speech are not helpful and i think those that set of tools there is really um useful I guess just alongside the who profits in terms of social media, like legacy media or traditional media or whatever we're calling it, like the newspapers, basically, like actually thinking about how they work and how limited that part of the public sphere actually is in terms of what can be said there and how much rubbish they churn out. Yeah. And and also, I think with that, the, the question that you were asking earlier about um, accountability becomes really interesting. And I, I was invited to this event recently, which was I felt was awful. And it was like um, essentially all many of the senior editors of like The Times, Sunday Express, like all these these papers and tabloids were there. And the idea was that, you know, you can ask them any question that you want to. And I was really thinking about it. And I was like, you know, what question could you possibly ask? Because this is not a process of accountability, is it? Like there's no way. And I got thinking about like what process of accountability would even look like, because the only question I could come up with was, you know, you know, how does it feel to have contributed to genocidal conditions? But that's obviously not a question that, that you're even allowed to ask, right? Like that's, that's not okay. And so... That just, it really just got me thinking about, yeah, what, I mean, what are these newspapers? How do they work? Why do they work? And it's exactly what you said, you know, that the first thing I found myself confronting was, well, who are the shareholders? Who's making money? Who owns them? And then as secondary to that, then that's who they're accountable to. So why would I think me saying, you're, you're being mean and you, you lead to people dying? They, why would they care about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we have sometimes been a bit, I think that, I say we, I'm, I'm going to assume everyone knows. I think if you're, if, you're part, if you're listening to the podcast, you're part of the we that I'm talking about. Like, sometimes forget what is and isn't a democratic institution. So, like, corporations are not democratic institutions. Like, they are accountable to their shareholders, not to us. And so we need to think about what kind of power we give them. Now, the state is technically supposed to be accountable to us. So we should think about what it is we demand of the state. Because I think that if we demand that the state protects us from offensive speech, what we've done is consolidated power in the state's hands. Okay. So what sort of alternative routes are more productive then? I wonder if we are going to petition the state for things, which I think we should. It it might be things like a more regulated corporate environment. So if I, I think that the possibility of a kind of more democratic uh 
public sort of sphere of, of public speech would be much more likely if Google paid its taxes, if the Murdoch monopoly was broken, if like publications that did publish things that were easily ver- easily verified as false information didn't just have to print a retraction, but they actually had to pay some consequences for that. So I think that one of the problems is that often talks about offensive speech or racist speech or misogynistic homophobic speech lead us down the kind of avenue of hate crimes legislation and I just I think that in over and over we see that that's much more likely to be used against like all parts of the criminal justice system is much more likely to be used against like vulnerable working class people albeit perhaps ones with offensive ideas than it is against like any of these big players who actually control the public sphere yeah the state itself right like who was the famous who watches the watchman exactly and like would you trust the british government to determine what is and isn't racist absolutely not and i guess but then does that does that go back to what you said earlier about and maybe i just misunderstood this genuinely which is like if we talk about regulation of um like corporate media and stuff i mean who's doing the regulating I think that's why there's a difference between like regulating how things can like where things can be said and who can make money from them versus regulating the thing itself. I think like so saying like um, the entire media can't be owned by Rupert Murdoch because that's a monopoly. And so there needs to be some way in which the state stops monopolies from being formed because that acts that's a danger to everyone right because it concentrates power in completely unaccountable hands so there's a reason that states are supposed to stop that happening so stopping the, the monopoly of the corporate media i think is different from saying if someone shouts a race, racist epithet at me on the street i think they should be put in prison i think those are asking two different things of the state yeah and, and, I, and that's really helpful because a lot of the conversations that you know people the guests on this podcast I guess, you know, everybody's invested in kind of trying to imagine an alternative future, right? And I think a lot of that has been around decriminalizing and kind of, you know, working alternatives to like punitive systems. And I think what you're talking about also helps us to kind of move away from like bad people say bad things and need bad consequences and good people say good things and and deserve power or whatever. And I think that's also, to me, like I feel like this has given me a set, set of questions also to kind of add to the pile of questions to ask when thinking of how to kind of build really strong, you know, resistance movements, because it's not just like these arbitrary ideas that we're up against. We're against, as you say, like very concrete structures and, and profit makers. Totally. And I think that saying that the con- that the consequences shouldn't be an increase in the criminal in criminalization doesn't mean that we say that there shouldn't people shouldn't pay consequences. So, like, I do think that I really think that we should continue to say that this kind of media elites who have who are almost like the self-appointed arbiters of what can and can't be said, they should they should go. And the consequences of having like boring, kind of tedious, self-involved liberal ideas that don't advance justice or even thoughts should be that you lose your job as a commentator like I think that's quite a reasonable consequence should you be put in prison no right like I think those are different things yeah yeah and that feels yeah that feels really helpful I think that's um and I I can only imagine like you know the kind of exciting 
spaces that would open up for different types of conversations and different you know sets of questions altogether because different people would get to ask them right totally so I think we should I think that sometimes we get backed into a corner where we start to sound like we're the ones advocating for censorship and actually I think we need to be really clear that like the fight for justice is the fight against state censorship but it's also the fight for like better ideas I agree. And I think that's a really wonderful place to end it, that we are, we're here for the fight for better ideas. And um, yeah, and I, and I hope that is what this podcast is all about. And so thank you so much for sharing your ideas um, around breaking down this binary, because you genuinely provided a really like holistic set of questions and tools for people. So um, I do hope we can all kind of move away from this with a bit more scepticism when it comes to these conversations. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Breaking Binaries. I hope you, like me, can take something from our guest this week. Look out for episodes fortnightly, and if you enjoy, please share. The music you've been hearing is made by an old high school friend that came through, so shout out to Violence Jack at at GetViolenceJackOnline. Thanks to all my guests for chatting to me every week and helping us think a little more critically, and I hope, humbly, about our world. I do believe that part of the way we transform the world is by transforming the ways we think about it. Thank you for listening. I've been your host, Sahima Manzul Khan. Bye.